As a Christian in Iran, Nagme Panahi was arrested numerous times and once even had a gun pointed at her head. But as awful as that was, Nagme says she endured something far worse when she began speaking out about abuse from her husband. It was then that she faced persecution, not from radical Muslims, but from Christians. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today you're going to hear my powerful interview at the Restore Conference with Nagme Panahi. Nagme was catapulted into the national spotlight when her husband, Pastor Saeed Abedini, was imprisoned for his faith in Iran. And with the help of Franklin Graham of Samaritan's Purse and Jay Sekulow of the American Center for Law and Justice, Nagme launched the Save Saeed campaign. The campaign garnered worldwide attention and it eventually led to Saeed's release. But during this time, Nagme learned that Saeed's violence, repeated insults, and spiritual manipulation was not just a sign of a bad marriage, it was abuse. Yet when she spoke out about the abuse, the backlash from Christians was virulent and cruel. And the psychological and spiritual damage from that backlash was far worse than anything Nagme said she encountered in Iran. In our interview, Nagme talks candidly about the abuse and the Christian community's failure to stand with victims. But she also talks about the persecuted church and how the Western church's failure to care for the abused and broken is not a bug, but a feature. I am so grateful for Nagme's prophetic witness to the American church, and I'm confident that God is using that witness both through podcasts like these and in Nagme's book aptly titled, I Didn't Survive, Emerging Whole After Deception, Persecution, and Hidden Abuse. We'll get to my interview with Nagme in just a moment, but first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marcorda Barrington. If you're looking for a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience, Judson University is for you. Judson is located on 90 acres just 40 miles west of Chicago in Elgin, Illinois. The school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Plus, you can take classes online as well as in person. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcord of Barrington. Marcord is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcord, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, here's my interview with Nagme Panahi on surviving persecution from the church. This is from our last Restore Conference in October 2023. Let's just start with a little bit of your story. And again, those of you who know her story, this may be familiar, but I know I learned a lot of new things. You were born in Iran. And the interesting thing is you got to see Iran before the revolution and then after. Talk about what the change was like in Iran when you when you saw that happen? Yeah, I was actually born soon, like a few years before the revolution. So my mom was one of the first women in the king's army as a woman, which was pretty radical for her time. And also just, um, you know, Iran has had Islam for about 1400 years. So in that Islamic culture, and she was a very proud woman with her gun and like protecting the Shah, but also, you know, having authority in in a sense that women usually didn't have. So my mom was kind of protecting the king from the revolution. My dad was actually one of the people that wanted the Islamic revolution because like before the revolution, people like my mom were wearing, wearing mini skirts and, you know, just like the U.S., they were free. And, um, my dad and his group of people thought, you know, we're becoming too westernized and, if we have an Islamic religious revolution, then the culture will be more purified. And so I kind of grew up in chaos. I saw like tires burning, my mom going and my nanny would cry and like, is she gonna come back? Cause she was trying to like defend against the um, protesters. And then my dad would be in the streets and there was like different groups that were trying to take over the government and they were all radical. And there was a lot of people just being killed in the streets. And so I kind of grew up in very, chaotic political atmosphere of where the country was becoming very Islamic. Mm -hmm. And so I went to school, I shared in my book, 
uh, my photo from my school, elementary school, and I looked at it and I was the most covered up. Like some of the girls had their head covering a little back. Just from the photo, you can tell I was so afraid. I was told mm. you can't show hair and all this um, teaching that was like going through the schools about just Islam and how we had to cover up. And um, so it was very foreign to me having seen my mom without a covering and then seeing her, she had to be all covered up and mm. her uh, rank, ta rank taken away from her. And she had to be like in, in an office setting as a woman, couldn't have any authority over men and any position of power. And so I was noticing a lot of that changes and um, the fear that was gripping a lot of the women, like, I would actually have a lot of dreams that I was walking in the streets in Iran without head covering and I was being arrested. And hmm. that was like one of my, a lot of the nightmares I had, but just the fear of having to cover up and right around the revolution, right after there was a war with Iraq. So I also grew up in war, like we had bombs and missiles and like, I was just flipping through my social media and I saw a video with the sirens going off in Israel and like, I all, mm. all of a sudden I had a panic attack because I could, mm. I would hear those sirens all the time, the time, like the bomb sirens and like you had to go to shelter and like not knowing if your house was going to be the next one that was bombed or a missile would hit it. Or a lot of the Iraqi soldiers were certain parts of Iran were like attacking and raping and taking captives and women and children were being killed. And so just it's brought back a lot of that memory as a child, even just hearing that siren was like so hard to listen to. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking when you're talking about being covered up, your mother losing her rank, being afraid as a woman. I mean, I'm thinking of Sheila's talk yesterday. I mean, this is like modesty message on steroids. As a young girl, how did you internalize? Like, how did that make you feel different about you? Yeah, I was told as a, um, like a seven-year-old at that time, like when I went to school, I had to dress up, like cover up. I was told that I was sexually appealing to men. As a seven-year-old? Yeah, seven that's what I, we had to, once I went to school, like six, seven-year-old, you had to be fully covered. And people I know that had their relatives, like their grandmother had married at the age of like nine and their mother had married at the age of, age of 12. Right now we do work in Afghanistan and since the Taliban has taken over these, as soon as the girl hurts puberty, like nine, a lot of times nine, 10, they're being married and they're now giving birth to babies at like 10, 11, 12. And so, yeah, it's unfortunately, it was part of the culture. And as a little girl, you're told that you had to cover up because it would be tempting to a man as a little seven-year-old, hmm. uh, which is interesting because years later I was like, huh. The purity culture sounds very Islamic. <laughs> sounds very. <laughs> hmm. So your parents did leave, and it sounded like the impetus was the fear that your brother might get drafted into the army. Yes. And, and the little boys were basically sent out there to check where the landmines were, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. it was almost certain death. Uh, so your parents escaped out of there and came to the U.S., settled in Idaho. And then the story of how you became a believer is, is really phenomenal. And interesting, too, how your parents, when you became a believer, that was not welcome. No, my mom was more of a moderate Muslim. My dad was very strong Muslim. Like, mm -hmm. he had his prayer life and fasting. I'd never, in, in the Islamic revolution world, I'd never heard of the name Jesus. And so when we came to America, my twin brother, who actually, he got his doctorate at University of Chicago in quantum huh. physics. And so he was not emotional growing up. And uh, even with the war, I was the more emotional one. He was the more like questioning God. And, but he was crying like I'd never seen him like emotional. And he said, I know, like we questioned who is God? Why is he allowing? Like we would see our classmates, like their dead bodies in the street. Mm. Um, our, the houses of the kids we would play with, like, completely gone. And we didn't know if we were next. I mean, just growing up in war was just uh, insane. And so we had a lot of questions about God. And he came running to me one day when we just come to America. And he said, I found the God we've been looking for. He's, his name is Jesus. And I was like, what? He's like, and he had a vision. I guess he had seen Jesus. And he said, he is all I felt was love. And I just know we have to find out who this Jesus is. And so that's how we were saved. We were 
running around acting like crazy nine-year-olds, like, who's Jesus? Um, and with our limited English, <laughs> we found some people who, you know, spoke Farsi and told us and gave us a Farsi Bible, and we thought our parents would be as excited as us. <laughs> they were angry. They, my dad wanted us actually to move us back to Iran to, he said, it's better if we die in the war. You've become Christian, you've lost your culture, you've lost everything. And my, my full name is Nagme Shariat Panahi. So Shariat is the Islamic law, so protector of the, Panahi means protector. So her last name meant protector of the Islamic law. And so my dad always prided himself, like, we're related to the Prophet Muhammad, like the, the Prophet of Islam. And so for him, for us to become Christian was like the worst thing ever. And so he was in the process of moving us back into a war. Uh, with like chemical warfare. My brother was about to be signed up to go to like run through the mines and he didn't, he didn't seem to care. He, he thought us becoming Christian was like the worst thing that had happened. Unbelievable. And despite that, I mean, you would think as a nine-year-old, something like this happens, your parents don't support it. It'll be gone. It would be eradicated from your life. Why didn't that happen? Yeah, my uncle, my uncle who uh, graduated from uh, university in California had found a job in Boise, Idaho. And he said, you know, let's move them there. They're only nine. It's just a little feeling. They're going to forget about this Jesus. You know, and as a nine-year-old, you want to please your parents. They, they're all we had in the war. Like, they were like our lifeline and wanting to please them. And so they thought, he said, they're going to forget about this Jesus. And we didn't. I don't, I mean, it's by grace of God. He kept our faith. Our Bible was taken from us. We went, we, me and my brother weren't allowed to even pray together. My dad had a lot of fits of anger, <laughs> just a lot of, we experienced a lot of like persecution, anger in the home. And um, in Idaho, we were pretty much isolated, tried to forget about Jesus and we didn't. And it was until, not until we were like from nine until like 16, 17, where my parents I guess were on their own journey. We didn't know, but they were on their own journey of finding Jesus. They were secretly reading the Bible they took from us. <laughs> I didn't know that at that time. But, yeah. And when did they actually become believers? Um, right around as I was graduating, they, I could see they had softened. Um, mm -hmm. I would sneak out. As soon as I got my driver's license, I would sneak out to a church. And I thought they didn't know, but they knew and they were okay with it because they were reading the Bible. And, um, <laughs> But they didn't become Christians until I went to college, and I, when I came home, they were like, we believe, we want to be baptized. And Isn't that amazing? From 9 until 22. And why is it, I mean, I've always, you hear this among Muslims so often, that they have these visions of Jesus, and they come to Jesus through that. I mean, it just seems to be a, a, a feature why, why do you think that is? I think that um, whoever cries out to God anywhere in the world, God will make himself known. Mm -hmm. um, in Iran, you don't have a lot of missionaries right now. And I would um, talk to people in, in Iran. I would talk to, and I would say, hey, like, I would talk to a woman, and I'd say, do you know who Jesus is? And they they would start crying and they would say, yes, I saw him in a mm. vision. Like, tell me more. Like, my child was dying and I cried out to God and I said, help. And Jesus appeared to me and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But they didn't know much. They just knew that he was, he'd healed their child or he was the way, the truth, and the life. Like, they knew little parts of who Jesus was, but it was really not hard to evangelize. That's why I think when I returned to Iran, we saw such a revival because people already knew who Jesus was. They'd seen him in dreams and visions and They'd already seen him move in ways that um, wasn't like, we weren't trying to convince them. They were like, yeah, we know him. He mm. healed our child or he, I saw him in a vision. And Wow. So you went to college. We're planning on becoming a doctor. Yes. You must have done quite well in school. I think coming uh, from an immigrant family, you're told you have to be <laughs> no lawyer choice. or doctor. Yeah. <laughs> we're in America. You have to pursue the American dream. Right. And probably the last place on earth you wanted to go was Iran, and yet you ended up back mm -hmm. in Iran. I did. My parents really struggled with that because I went right after September 11, 
and when no one wanted to get on an airplane and um, no one wanted to fly into Middle East. So I had the whole airplane to myself <laughs> flying into Iran as President Bush was like, We're gonna, there's going to be war in that region. And so I just felt like God was like, this is the time to go. I'm going to change that land through the gospel. Like my fight is through the gospel, is through love, you know, in Christ. And so I didn't know when I went back. Um, and my parents thought I was crazy. I was um, about to take the MCAT. Like I was on the road to be a medical doctor. And I said, I need a break. I feel like God's telling me to go to Iran. And, um, and I just, I didn't know that I was going to be at the forefront of a revival, but I just knew God was like, you need to go now. And so when I went, he allowed me to be at the forefront of revival and be part of leading one of the largest house church movements in Iran. And when you flew over there, was it on the plane you get those cards and you have to declare yes. things? In, the, in Muslim countries, it, I don't know why, but every single, they have no shame about discrimination. Every <laughs> single, religious discrimination is like, they don't, there's like nothing. And so everything you fill out has religion. What's your religion? So like, that's why Christians, when people become Christians, like uh, they have to fill up, um, and because of their conscience, they can't put Muslim. So they put Christian. So as soon as they put Christian, they even like filling out a passport. If they write Christian, they're arrested. They can't work if they write Christian. If they're not arrested, they, can, they, they can't find job or they can't go to school. Christians are not allowed to go to school. Um, and so even on the airplane immigration form, it had like religion. And I knew my last name meant I was a Muslim. Like people could tell by your last name you're a Muslim, but I knew I was a Christian. I really struggled with that form. And um, it was right after September 11, and I was like stepping into radical Iran that I had read about killing so many pastors and hanging them as an example, and I wrote down Muslim. And also because of your name, they would know that, that you were born converted. Muslim. Yes, yeah, that yeah. you converted, and that's major, major no-no. Yeah, I was flying by myself, and I mean, I just felt so bad. I felt like a Peter moment. I just, there was so much fear flying into Iran, and as a Christian, I'd never experienced that. I hadn't, ex I, uh, anyways, I had left Iran as a Muslim. God was allowing me to go back as a Christian and to experience what it meant mm. uh, to really understand the persecuted church. And so, yeah. So you get into Iran. Talk about the church and the, you know, the way the house church movement was going, and also about this very charismatic pastor that you saw over there named Saeed. Saeed, yeah. yeah. So I grew up in the purity movement. I was like, when I went to Iran, I was 24. I hadn't dated. I hadn't, I was told first hold, holding hand or first kiss had to be with someone you married. I had some people pursued me in college, good Christian guys that I was like, nope. And so I hadn't really experienced any date, anything. And um, Iran had, right now they don't, they had some building churches that they allowed the Armenians to conduct church uh, because the Armenian people are considered Christians. They're not converting. They were like, they have been Christians for generations. So Iranian government allows for religious freedom for the Armenians to conduct church. They weren't allowed to let Muslims in, like Persians. Persians are, you know, have been Muslims for so many hundreds of years, you know, 1400 years. And but the church actually that I met Saeed in had started allowing Muslims to come in and they were converting. And one of them was Saeed. And that's why they had killed some of their pastors. The government had arrested and killed some of the pastors at that building church. And I saw Saeed, he was on a, it's a long story how I ended up in that church. I had a cousin that had gotten saved and invited me. So I was about to leave Iran. I had, I had been a missionary for one year and I had five people who accepted Christ. And I was like, okay. I shared with every single relative, like aunt, aunt, uncle, gave out Bibles. And there was like five people who became Christians. And then I was like, okay, I'm done. I was about to leave. My cousin invites me to this church service. Um, and I go and Saeed was on the on stage worship, on the worship team. And I really saw a lot of passion for Jesus. And then he was like, I, I love evangelism. Like that's my number one passion. And even in Boise, I would always go and evangelize to like the refugees, the Muslim refugees that were coming in. And so he seemed like this great evangelist and I was really drawn to him. And so 
we start working together. He was actually reached out to me and said, hey, you want to do ministry together? And I didn't realize, but um, he was going to an underground Bible school by the Assemblies of God there. And they were, uh, because the government was heavily persecuting the building church, they were being trained to start house churches. So at that time, he had about a dozen people. I had five. We decided to join forces. And within a few years, it grew to thousands over in like 33 cities. And uh, it was college students. They were, mm. our um, house was in the middle of Tehran by Tehran University. And so all these college students were getting saved. And then they would go back into their city and evangelize. And all these house churches was just like popping up and like all over Iran, every like 33 major cities had like churches within like two years. Mm. Very organically. Very, it was all college students, very organic. And women. Yes. <laughs> women did a lot of leadership, yes. which is really, I mean, ironic in a, in a Muslim country. Very ironic. I was just sharing that as like China and Iran has this revival of like house church movement and women are the main ones leading it. And in a culture, like uh, Iranian culture, where women are literally told their property, and the, the, a lot of the Muslim men treat them with a lot of contempt. They're, they don't have a lot of freedom. And so a lot of uh, Muslim women are drawn to the church and become saved because they see how the men in the underground church honor women, and they're mm -hmm. leading. Mm -hmm. And the men are completely okay with that, and they're working together. I mean, there's no titles. There's no stage. They call each other brother and sister, even their, the pastor, which is like a shepherd or shepherdess, hmm. um, is called sister, like Sister Nagme or Sister Julia. Hmm. So no one's called, like no one's given a title. And actually being the pastor or the leader of that house church means you're going to be the first one to be arrested and, and uh, killed. You know, and I share in my book about a 10-year-old girl that I met in one of the cities, and she was she got saved at 10. She was passionate by 25 uh, she was uh, discipling like 500 women, and she was arrested, tortured, solitary confinement. She would not even give out one name. She was defending her flock. Like, she went through so much, and she came out. She's like, I didn't give out one name. She not, they weren't able to find any of the 500 people that she was discipling. And um, so that's what it means to be, like, the leader. It's like you're literally laying down your life for the sheep. It's not, like, a place of, like popularity or like it's actually not a place uh, I've, I've shared that with in the podcast with you not a place that a lot of narcissists like to <laughs> serve <laughs> it's not fun <laughs> I mean that's that's the thing if you hear so often the shepherd should be the first to lay down his life right and if that were the case it, it does just sort of naturally weed out the chaff Literally, if you're the leader, means you're going to be the first one that's arrested and tortured. So who wants to, who, what narcissist want to do, wants to do that? So you don't see a lot of um, narcissists, and you don't see, a, unfortunately, you don't see a lot of the men wanting that position. So a lot of the women are the ones carrying the torch of the gospel, and they're the ones being arrested. They're the ones being raped. They're the ones being tortured. They're, they're the woman by the well that Jesus is using. I was sharing with one of my pastors recently. I was like, how dare God use women under, underground churches in Iran? Like, why, do, <laughs> why, why does he do that? But uh, um, it's the woman. But they're not getting any popularity. They're literally being tortured and killed. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones. There is the weak. Like, isn't, doesn't Jesus say he uses the weak, broken? Yes. Is the weak, broken woman who've been so shattered in that society that God is just lifting up and honoring Hmm. and giving the privilege to suffer for the gospel. And where we see the church shrinking in the West, in these places where it's organically happening without all of the, the money and the programs and the, you know, all the seven steps to this, that, or the other thing, the gospel is going forward. Yes, it is Does going it? without a program. It's just, it's weak vessels that um, society has crushed that Jesus is honoring and, and using for the gospel in like one of the hardest countries in the world that has the most uh, crazy governments and it has great wisdom. God is using that. And doesn't he say that in his word? Like mm -hmm. that's who he uses. But it's really, um, it's so confusing for me because I see that happening in the Middle East and then the way women are honored 
in a, in a place where they haven't been. Mm. And then I see something different here, which is so, it's been so hard to try to digest that. And, but it's so radical. I mean, if you guys could understand how radical it is, and I know you've watched like Sheep Among Wolves and all that, like it's radical for women to be leading in the Middle East, mm. the house churches. Like this is not, just think about that in a culture that has said you're nothing, you're property. Mm. Like just how radical that is. And for Jesus during his time to do that too, like be so radical in the way he honored women. I am just still shocked by the fact that how the men in the house churches really honor the women and mm. really like God, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no other explanation. That's so yeah. cool. So you told of a time when you denied the Lord, but you had another chance. Yeah, I told the Lord, um, I went home and I cried and I said, God, if I have another opportunity, I will not deny your name. And two and a half years later, I was arrested. Well, I'd been arrested a lot, many times for the gospel. We were, we were like, if we were smuggling Bibles, like at night, we would try to move around Bibles and give it to different house churches. So we were arrested many times with like, there's so many stories. But um, there was an instant where it was the scariest um, because I was actually detained. I had guns pointed to my head. We were basically told, like, if you say you're a Christian, you will go to a woman's prison. You will, like, get raped and, like, tortured and you will die. If you say you're Muslim, like, you get to walk out this door right now. And I, everything within me wanted to be, like... Muslim. Like, I was like, <laughs> I just want to get out of that door. I had like, you, like the radical revolutionary guards all around me with guns. And, and I was just like, okay, God, like, you know how the Bible says, like, he will put the words in our mouth. And I said, I'm a Christian. And um, it's a, it's a, it, the story is more detailed in my book, but towards the end of it, he was, this um, top interrogator was crying and asking for a Bible. The, the guy that threatened to kill me. Mm -hmm. was actually ended up asking for a Bible. And Saeed said that he got his inspiration from you because you... There was three deny. of us that got yeah. arrested. The first guy wrote Muslim, and then it was my turn, and so I wrote Christian, mm -hmm. and the Revolutionary Guard um, interrogator asked for my testimony. He said it's your... Basically, my testimony was the evidence that was going to convict me of the death um, sentence they were gonna give me for converting. And then Said uh, also said he was Christian and he told me after we left, um, he's like, I was gonna write Muslim, but when you said Christian, I was like, he's like, I got inspired to also write Christian, so yeah. yeah. So you guys come back to the States. You, you end up getting married to Said. There were some red flags in your dating relationship, obviously, that you talk about in the book. And we don't have time to go into all of what happened, but what was your life with Saeed like behind closed doors? Yeah, so Saeed had never been to the States. We, we came to the States um, 2005 after a lot of persecution, but in Iran, it was uh, the first like full-on physical abuse happened when we fled Iran in Dubai, so about a year and a half into our marriage. But I didn't see the signs of abuse, obviously, now looking back. But mm -hmm. early on, he was didn't find me a try. He would say, you're so dark, and you're so ugly, and you need to do nose surgery. You need to do surgery with your eyebrows, and you need to lose weight. And um, so he was just like... Pretty much, like, I start questioning, like I said, by the, by the time we were married, like, eight years into the marriage before Saeed's arrest, I couldn't even think for myself. I remember, like, the interviews, I would tell people, like, I've, I, I, this is the first time I'm processing life without Saeed because I would have to ask him permission, like, what do I say? And it was really hard, um, like, being put in the spotlight and having to, like, rely on my own, like, not ask Saeed, like, to give answers. It started out with him putting down my looks, and then it was like questioning the way I was seeing things, and then questioning the way I was looking at scripture, and saying I was like idolizing scripture. I needed to let the Holy Spirit, like, like you know, his own idea of what the Holy Spirit is, and just he started questioning my understanding of scripture. There was not full-on beating, but he would like shove me. He had me beg. He would have me beg and kiss his it's in the book. There's some really hard stuff in the book. But it just pretty much, um, 
after eight years of marriage, we came to America because of intense persecution. And then after four years of being in America from 2005 to 2009, we didn't go to Iran, but then he started traveling and then he got arrested. He thought, well, we haven't done house church for four years. I can go back. He went back and forth, back and forth. 2012 was arrested. The time he was arrested, I was a shell of a person. Mm. I had no friends. He cut off my family, my friends. I had so much makeup on. I was 30 pounds lighter than I am now. I tried everything to be exactly how he wanted me to be. And I couldn't show emotion. If I cried, he would say, you're trying to manipulate me with your tears. He would get very angry with tears. Mm -hmm. I couldn't laugh. I couldn't uh, express any emotion. So I was just like this very dead person, just like basically, I worked full time, he didn't work. So I was like full time, I was a slave. I was working full time, taking care of the kids, cooking, cleaning. And he was just traveling, and I was funding his travels. And, and so I was completely, I was like close to death <laughs> before God took, I didn't realize his imprisonment was my freedom. I did not see it. I was so mad at God, and I explained it in my book. I thought God was being so cruel to me. Hmm. By now, now I have to try to get my husband out of like the worst prison in the world. Like, And you had gone from being pre-med, you had done incredibly well in school. Then you helped your dad run his business. So I you was were very confident. Confident, competent, all of these things. And after these years of marriage, you, you had been reduced yes. to, to that point. And then you start advocating for him. It doesn't dawn on you that you're being abused till pretty far along in the whole process. But yeah. talk about when you finally, because I think a lot of people have heard you know, this story up until this point, but then you, you advocated for him, and then you got to the point where you finally said, and it dawned on you, you were being abused, and yeah. you said something. <laughs> well, the reason I, it dawned on me, if he hadn't had a phone, most people don't realize this part of the puzzle. The last uh, year of his imprisonment, he had obtained a smartphone where he could literally get on the internet in maximum security prison in Iran. It was like a, we, um, it, it was a smuggled phone, like worth $7,000 to get that phone to him. But um, I'm glad it happened because at first I was like, why um, does he have a phone and he's treating me like this? He would call me Jezebel. Like that was the number one word he used against me. Um, whore. And again, you're ugly. You're nobody. If people are clapping, they're clapping for Abedini, Said Abedini. They're not clapping for you. I'm the hero of this story because he was like, he saw that I met with Obama, I met with Trump, I met with like all, I was on the news um, and we did a prayer vigil with Mr. Franklin Graham and like 2 million people watched online and, and he saw when he called me for the first time, he saw this confident woman that he had destroyed for eight years. So he saw like, oh, she has confidence in Jesus. Like I, during the, his time of imprisonment, um, it was my time in the cocoon. Like I was like reading the word, praying again, because I couldn't even pick up the Bible when I was in, in, my abu in the abuse. Hmm. I couldn't imagine, like I'd kept myself pure. I had been a missionary and like, and part of me was really mad at God for allowing me to suffer like this. I mean, I describe a lot of hard things in the Bible. I was, I mean, in, the, in my book, it was, I was raped by him. I was, it was just a horrible, horrible marriage. And so part of me, I guess, um, had distanced myself from God thinking I was like, I kept myself pure. I wanted to serve you. Like, why would you allow this? And so when he was in prison, actually, I drew close to God and I, and uh, like you said, I had been raised in a home where I was like, my dad gave me a lot of confidence and so anyways, my heavenly father was like really through the Bible, I was like finding confidence. So when he got a smartphone, he saw that confidence and he was scared. I didn't see it at that time. Hmm. So as he was calling me all sorts of names, I'm like writing articles for the Washington Post, New York. I'm like writing op-eds and being on the news and traveling, speaking at churches. And he's calling me names. I couldn't understand why. Because people are like, your husband must be so proud of you. I was literally traveling the world, getting him out. He got... He had eight-year sentence. Um, he was spent three years in prison, ha six months in house arrest. But he could have been there for a longer time. They were actually going to give him more and more years. People are like, he must be so proud. You've met with presidents to get him out, and and then here he was calling me names, and I couldn't get it. So finally, I broke. Like coming from the Middle Eastern culture and the Christian culture, you don't want to air out your dirty laundry. So I didn't tell anyone. Even like my parents had experienced his abuse. 
themselves. He had physically beat up my dad. And, but it was a culture of you don't divorce no matter what, but also a culture you don't talk about it. So for the first time I shared with this pastor that I was speaking at his church, I said, I don't understand. Here's all these text messages he's sending on Skype to me. He's calling me all sorts of names. Like, I don't get it. Like, why? And he said, you're an abused wife. He said, this is why he is. And then it started making sense. Oh, he needed to crush me to control me. And I wasn't crushed. I was not during his time of imprisonment. God was setting me free and Saeed was seeing that. And so he was calling me all sorts of names. And so when this pastor gave me the diagnosis, that was, that was it. I, I, there was no going back. Because before then, I was like, I have a hard marriage. And then once I knew it was cancer, I was like, nope, this is needs radiation. This is chemo. And I knew, like, um, I had to do, like, I had to educate myself on what abuse was and what do I do. Hmm. And so you sent an email Mm-hmm. To, I, to like a hundred of close supporters. Yeah, it was like, yeah, this is the way the media has blown it up. I sent an email to like yeah. really close friends and then that got leaked to media. And then yeah, I was like, uh, what was it? I think Lorianne Thompson said the stone was like, like the person <laughs> bleeding by the road. I was like, stones were thrown at me. Yeah. I was bullied by Franklin Graham, told to shut up. You're damaging the cause of Christ. Um, he used every power, every connection he had. And he was like, you're never, ever going to do ministry again. If you talk, I was like, I don't want to do ministry. I just want to live quietly in Boise, Idaho. Like, mm-hmm. Why is ministry an idol? I don't wanna do <laughs> he was scaring me by like saying, you're never going to do anything. I'm like, it's okay. I don't want it. So he couldn't hold that over me, but I lost everything. Like Lorianne Thompson said, my, I had to quit my job to advocate for him. So my income had been speaking engagements. And that was taken from me. So all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of a... He comes out, files for divorce, because how dare I have leaked, like said, shared with a group of people that leaked the information about abuse. And so he came out, filed for divorce, My the worst thing I was afraid of, which was actually my freedom. But at that time, it was heartbreaking because I fought to get him out. He didn't even want to fight for our marriage. He just came out and filed for divorce. And... Um, I literally lost everything. I lost my marriage. I lost my income. I had stones thrown at me. I was literally by the side of the road and all the religious leaders were like either kicking me or like quietly walking by. It was very few that were like, there was all the text messages stopped, all the, you know, Nogme, we got you. And uh, my poor kids too, they would always get gifts and like support. <laughs> all like they would get so many gifts on their birthdays and it all of a sudden stopped and they were no longer, you know, and they're like, mom, what happened? <laughs> and all of a sudden we're just like, I mean, I got so many calls from past like pastors that were just like throwing things at me. And like, I had a really interesting experience with family research council too. And so it was just like a lot of stones at a time where my marriage was falling apart. And, um, yeah, it was a very difficult time. So the, the title of your book is I didn't survive. People don't like that. They're like, you're a survivor. <laughs> but the old Nogme is not the Ogme who's sitting here. It's just like uh, Dr. Monroe said, you know, that mm-hmm. you change. I you're change. different. Um, how have you changed and why? I am not the person I was 10 years ago when Saeed went to prison. I think I would describe it like a caterpillar going to the cocoon. The caterpillar is no longer the caterpillar, it's a butterfly. Uh, there's a confidence I have in God. There's a lack of fear of what religious leaders, I mean, I, my Goliath was Franklin Graham. <laughs> he used every power he had to shut me down. I know this mm-hmm. for a fact. Some megachurch pastors called me and said, yeah, Franklin called us. And every person I reached out for help, Franklin would call and say, if you help her, you know? And so um, like, yeah, there's a lot of stories. It's, um, I'm, I don't have fear of like losing anything. Like I know that losing income, ministry, people's praises, like all of that was like fell. And, um, the pre, the old Nagme was afraid of losing a lot of things like marriage status, like income, like even as a single mom and like all that fear is gone. He's been my provider day in and day out. I live for Christ. And if people don't like that, then it's okay. <laughs> I don't get any benefit from people either clapping or 
So there's a lot of people pleasing. I'm just not the old Nagme. I, the old Nagme was so afraid, cared about people's opinion. I mean, I care for people, but I'm not a people pleaser. You would have been surprised to meet the Nagme of 2012. Hmm. She would have been a completely different person. Something Miriam said in her book is she said that the, the domestic abuse that she suffered by her husband mm -hmm. was worse. And if you read Miriam's book, I can't quite even wrap my head around what could be worse than some of the things that she mm -hmm. suffered at the hands of Muslim persecutors. Mm -hmm. But in what ways was that worse when you get persecuted from professing Christians? She and said it's worse. So Miriam and I are, she's one of my best friends. And she came out of Sudanese prison. She was on death row. And I met her soon after she'd given birth to her daughter, Maya, in prison. And um, then she faced this horrific, like, you will read her account in prison in her book that's out there. Uh, the prison experienced her growing up as a refugee in Sudan. Her mom was a refugee. Her dad was Sudanese. And she grew up in a horrible situation. And, the, and then she was given the death sentence by the radical Muslims there in Sudan and treated horribly. For her to say what she experienced in domestic abuse and the church's response was worse than that, I was like, are you, what? <laughs> she said she knew that was the enemy. She didn't. She's like, I knew that was my enemy. I knew that those people that were, had persecuted me were my enemy. I didn't expect it to come from my home, and I didn't expect it to come from my Christian community. Like, that was what was like, I think you said that about Lorianne Thompson's, is like that it came from the church is like the most messed up thing with the name of carrying the name of Jesus to for broken people that Jesus so cares about to be trampled on and used and abused is, is, I just, that just, it's, it's so messed up. And so that's why she says that. She's like, I didn't expect it in my home, my, that my enemy would be in my home. And the, the way the Christian community responded to her, she was a Christian hero for standing up to the Muslim community in Sudan. And then she was a bad person for wanting to divorce her abusive mm -hmm. husband. No one wanted to touch her. She, she became, like, she, she shares that. It's like the modern leper. She, yeah, she became, a, she actually became homeless. Like no one wanted to help her. Uh, she had to flee her home with her two kids that had just left Sudanese prison. <laughs> and no one wanted to touch it. No one wanted to get her lawyer help, get her like nothing. She had nothing. She'd just come out of Sudan with no English. She filed for divorce in 2018. So four years after she came out from Sudan. So she knew a little bit of English, but she'd never worked in the U.S. Like, I mean, she literally was, like, helpless. She had no family. Her mom had died. Her, I mean, she had no family. And um, the Christian community that had tried to help her escape Sudan was now like, eh, don't, talk, don't talk to us. Like, don't, don't reach out. Don't talk to us. Like, she became a leper. Yeah. So I wish she was here and would tell her story. But. Yeah. So last question, because we're going to have to wrap up. But having been through what you've been through, seen what you've seen, and the house church movement in Iran, then coming to the U.S. and experiencing what you did by the American church. What message do you have for the American church today? I, um, to get a Lance's book. <laughs> <laughs> it's so messed up. The way the system is like destroying is, is not Christianity. What we have here is a system. It's a business. It's um, it's not laying down your life for the sheep as, as gain. It's actually, it's like Ezekiel where God's like, you're abusing, like you're using the sheep for your own benefit. A good shepherd would actually lay down. I mean, Paul says, you know, um, parents should give to the children, not children. Like he should have been this rich pastor. And he's like, I'm poor. I'm homeless. I'm treated like he wasn't a great speaker. He wouldn't be probably have any church gathering. Um, and so it's just the way um, the system is, has really, it's, it's not, if you, if anyone, anyone that comes from the house church movement in Iran or China, they come here and they're like, oh, the church is asleep. Like there's no church. There's buildings. People are gathering in buildings, but the church is dead. Like it's, anyone has, has ever come. That's the first reaction they give is like, wow, the church here is like, sleeping. And so I would say, I think we really need to rethink 
And not just read about Jesus was the servant, like what does that mean in my life? And I love what Lorianne Thompson said that um, we don't also, as, as abuse survivors, we are not the heroes either. Like Jesus is. I, mm-hmm. I think the reason I wrote my book, it's not heroic. Someone wrote a review and it's like, it's not about anyone being a hero. It's about, it's the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And mm. my hope is like my testimony is going to help draw people to Christ because I'm not the answer. Christ is. And so I, that's why I've kind of refrained from um, have, writing a curriculum or having an answer. I'm like, Jesus, like, <laughs> he helped me, like, you know, point to him. And so um, we're not the heroes, I, I, you know, as, as survivors or as the persecuted church. The persecuted church doesn't want to be heroes. They're just following Christ. Mm. But I think we can learn a lot from the persecuted church and really learn what it means to carry our cross. I don't think the American church really, the leadership, understand what that is, like, what does it mean to carry your cross and die to yourself daily? Mm-hmm. So, and I do believe that out of the ashes, new things yes are are coming. And uh, who was it that said? Uh, maybe it was last night at the dinner that I think it was uh, Lori Adams Brown who said that she believes that survivors and a lot of what's happening for people that have been through this who have really experience the pain of what's happened. Yes. That there that's fertile ground it is. for a new thing to happen in the church. And so that's my prayer. I think this is my I've prayed and cried out to God many times. I think God's gonna use the broken. Mm-hmm. We are looking for oh I think Sheila said that too. We're looking we're like looking to these big platforms to do something. God's like, no, I'm gonna use the little scattered broken people on the outside. <laughs> you keep looking to these like mega church pastors like see, please see this. And they're not because if for them to see it, it means their whole world would be toppled upside down. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to change these big organizations. But a lot of times the answer is actually Jesus is like, no, I'm actually going to build my, I'm going to do a work outside of that. And that's going to, yeah. Anyways, I, I think just having spent many hours just crying for the church in America, because I was born and raised for the first nine years in Iran, but I've been in America for like 30 some years. Mm. And so I've cried for this country Mm. and as a Christian, and I think he's going to work in a way we didn't expect him to. It's not going to be people with platforms. It's going to be a grassroots. No one's going to be the hero. It's only going to be Jesus. Mm. And I tell people, I'm like, yeah, you know, I tell people because they like to build heroes. I'm like, "Eh, don't, don't look to me to be the chain, yeah. like it's gonna require every one of us, like Sheila, mm-hmm. I think said, and a lot of the speakers, like it's gonna be a grassroots because like I said, like Jesus himself, he, God is a jealous God. He He deserves all the glory. He's gonna be the Amen. savior. There's no many saviors that are gonna change the climate mm-hmm. of, you know, here. So it's just gonna be all Jesus. So, but all of us are just a voice, but we need to use our voice. And I think what Lorianne said, um, or Adam said, is uh, true. I think it's going to be a lot of the, the movement is going to start with the survivors and the broken. And that's why people ask me, like, you're so passionate about the Middle East. I still work with the underground church in Iran and Afghanistan. I'm not a ministry, but I try to collect money and just give everything there. Um, um, and uh, But I also care about the abuse. And they're like, this is kind of two different worlds. I'm like, no, it's not. Because hmm. Jesus is with the broken. The persecuted church is broken. The abuse is broken. They're both desperate for God. And guess what God cannot resist? God cannot resist his people being broken. Like, he hmm. will step in like hmm. you have not. Lorianne Thompson said she was like, once she had her daughter, she's like, I will like fight for her. And like, God is that jealous for us Mm -hmm. and like when we're broken that's when god's like steps in and so for both the persecuted church and the abused my heart is for them first of all jesus says if you want to minister to me minister to the least of these my brothers so if you want to actually walk with jesus it's not on the big platforms it's literally walking with the least of these that's where i experience jesus is when i'm walking with an abused woman i'm not on a i'm literally just I've had abused women live in my house. Like that's where I'm experiencing Jesus. Or when I'm working with the persecuted church who have no money to eat 
and they're still carrying forth the gospel. They're in these countries that are sanctioned. Like they're, they're so poor, and as Christians, they're even poorer, but they continue to take the gospel. So when I hang out with the least of these, I truly experience the move of the Spirit. And so they're related. I, the persecuted church and the survivors, abused you know, women and men, they have a common thread that is attractive to me, and that's brokenness and desperation for God. So. Anyways, I know we're like Preach. Yes. <laughs> Tanya. Every time I sit with you, I get inspired. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank you for so truthfully telling your story and for being an inspiration to so many of us. Thank you, Julie. And I just so appreciate it. You know, people have attacked you before um, being divisive and like, uh, trying to like go after the church, but your heart to bring healing to the church is, I think I just know there's going to be, I've prayed for this. There should be tens of thousands of people like coming to this conference of just finding that restoration. And, and, you know, and so I appreciate your work so much and, um, I, yeah, keep going. Thank so you. You have my prayers and so thank you. Right. Thank you. Well, that was just such a special interview with Nagme Panahi, and it's one of many unforgettable moments from our last Restore Conference. And if you're listening and thinking, man, I don't want to miss out on that next Restore Conference, I want to encourage you to send us an email at roysreport at julieroys.com. And Roys is spelled R-O-Y-S. And just put in the subject line, Restore Email, and we'll be sure to add you to our email list. And then when we announce the date and all the information about the next conference, you'll be sure to be the first to know. Again, that's roysreport at julieroys.com. Also, if you're grateful for these interviews and talks, which we're making available free of charge, would you please consider giving to The Roy's Report? As I've noted before, we don't have any big donors or advertisers, we simply have you, the people who care about abuse and corruption in the church and want to expose it. To donate, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash donate. That's julieroys, dot com slash donate. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. That way, you won't ever miss any of these episodes. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you were blessed and encouraged. <laughs>